Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey everyone, it's Michael here. Welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast. To begin this episode, I have a gift for you guys. If you want to strengthen your strategy and problem-solving skills, as you often make requests about how we do those complex strategy studies, we are making a PDF download of the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies. If you go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach, you can get a free copy there. Again, it's firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. So today we have an interesting guest, and I'm going to introduce him right now. William, how are you today? I'm fine, Michael. How are you? Very, very good. Thank you for being here. It's an opportune time given all of the turmoil going on in the markets and the number of firings across the tech sector. Yes. I. Uh, no one would have foreseen that back in the pandemic when they couldn't hire quickly enough. <laughs> and I just read this morning that consulting firms across the United States, at least the big four, the audit-driven firms are also going to around for about 5% cost cuts. Yes, absolutely. So a lot is happening. I mean, we've got geopolitical tension with China and so on. But let's get into the, the crux of it, right? In your work, given all of the turmoil that's going on, what have you seen are the things that the best leaders are doing to manage their organization during these turbulent times? Well, I think, you know, until AI advances quite a bit, it's still the, the leader's top job is to make sure they have the right people and also in the right seats. And if you've got a great team and they're in the jobs that match who they are, then everything else falls into place. So I, I continue to believe, despite the turbulence, that the number one job of the leader is to spot, identify and retain really great talent. And that's part of why we set out to write the book we wrote uh, was to help leaders say, okay, who really does stand out in the crowd? And also I, I think maybe even more central to the, the work was to say, if you're somebody who's trying to stand out of the crowd, here's the things that people do that, that mark them as special. Yeah. So it doesn't sound that complicated. It sounds like managing a professional sports team. You find the best players give them the support they need, and put them in the positions where they can add the most value. That's a great way of saying it, yes. So that sounds pretty simple, but it's obviously hard to do. What makes it so hard? Well, I think, uh, you know, I have a, a good friend uh, named Dave Ramsey. He's on the radio quite a bit and gives financial advice yes. for consumers. And, and uh, you know, I, I own a search firm. We've done a good bit of work for him before, and Golly, the number of interviews. I said to him one time, I said, Dave, I'm convinced that I, I could probably place somebody in the CIA quicker than I can at your company. <laughs> Why do you need so many interviews? And he said, you know, William, I've learned over the years, even a donkey can act like a thoroughbred for three interviews. <laughs> so I think part of the problem leaders have is nobody gets hiring right all the time. 
and and if if it's if it's like use me for instance i know one of my weaknesses is i really believe in what we're doing and yes. i think it's the most fabulous job i've ever had so when i get a candidate in front of me that i think is talented it's very easy for me to slip out of discerning whether they should be on the team and into recruiting them to join the team <laughs> in fact my my lead team won't let me near candidates until they're pretty sure the person should be hired because I'll, I'll end up just trying to recruit them. And I think a lot of leaders fall into that trap. Uh, you know, another reason hiring is so hard is no one trains you how to do it. Yes. And you don't really spend your life doing it. I, you know, we've done with the very best candidates we've seen, we've done 30,000 long format face-to-face -face interviews. I, they're probably fabulous CEOs and fabulous management consultants out there who couldn't get even close to that and probably shouldn't. And sometimes I think uh, uh, wisdom is the child of repetitions, if that makes like sense. That. So I just happen to have more repetitions under my belt and it makes it easier, but really smart people, I'd say the smartest leaders I know only bat about 500 in hiring. So I, it, it, yes, very simple equation. And yes, very difficult to execute. That's why I think there need to be more and more resources to help people identify, is this a good idea or not to hire this person? And more and more resources for candidates who want to stand out of the crowd to say, how can I stand out in a way that would get me the job as opposed to somebody that might be the wrong person for the job? You said two things that were interesting, and I want to unpack that for the listeners. The first thing you said, which I thought was interesting, because not many people pick up on this. Sometimes when you go into an interview, we know we have to test the candidate. But then for some reason, we default to trying to get the candidate to join the firm without going through the correct process of vetting them. I've seen this happen with many leaders whereby these are fairly tough men and women, but something happens, a set of circumstances happen where they believe they need to bring in a candidate. And the role they take is to champion their joining into the firm versus asking, are they the right person to be in the firm? Is that the right way of thinking about that first point? I think that's exactly right, Michael. I think that anyone who's in senior leadership in the company probably really believes in the cause and the mission and the work of the company. They really should. If they don't, yes. that'd be odd. And I just think that driver, when you spot someone that you think is talented, all of a sudden you 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 click into the gear of becoming the brand ambassador. I mean, how much time do CEOs spend telling the story of their company, trying to in, it, you know, convince shareholders we have a great thing going, trying to raise another series of funding? It, it's it, the job of the CEO oftentimes is to sell the story. Yes. And when you get in an interview with people, it's really easy to slide into selling the story rather than testing the candidate. And uh, you've got to do a little bit of both because the, yes. the job market is, is on the one hand, maybe more volatile than ever. And if economists are right and we're headed toward a little bit of a constriction, it'll get worse. But, but boy, it's an employee's market, too. So you do have to. I, I tell our clients all the time, you've got to wear two hats during a search. The first hat is a discernment hat. Does this person fit and are they right? And the second hat in this order is a recruiting hat. Sell the cause. Sell what you're trying to get done. But I, I think far too often, and for me at least, my weakness is I end up putting on the recruiting hat first and not the discernment. 
Yes. You know, maybe that's just a weakness of mine. I, I think it also, people don't realize, I think everyone knows when you add a new team member, you're changing your organization. The chemistry of the team changes anytime you add someone. And, and that's scary because if you've got a good thing going on, you don't want to mess it up. And what I think it's taken me 15 years of doing search to realize is, you know, hiring is a venture into the unknown. I don't know if I hire you, Michael, I don't know how you're going to affect our team, yes. what good you're going to bring, what uh, weaknesses you're going to, it's a, it's a venture into the unknown. And so what happens? Well, we'll do anything we can to stay away from the unknown. That's the, I think that's one of the primal fears of human beings, whether you're afraid of death and the unknown beyond that, or I've still got a kid that wants a nightlight on in the hallway because we're afraid of the dark and the unknown. It's just, it, everyone's more afraid of the unknown than they realize. And here's what happens in hiring. Uh, Michael, I'm looking for a new CFO. Uh, do you yes. know anybody? And you say, oh, well, William, there was someone I went to school with. He's really talented. You should call him. Well, now, now I'm not in the unknown anymore. Now you've given me what I think is a really great lead. They might be great. My company might be horrible for them, or they might not fit yes. what we're doing. But now I've latched onto this little thing I think is a known entity, and I'm so afraid of the unknown that I go into recruiting this person that I know, and you should come here, and boy, I've known Michael forever, and now we're going to have a great time. And then you look up you know, a little later and you go, that wasn't the best idea. And I, I think every listener out there would agree with me and say the most expensive hire you will ever make is hiring the wrong person. Yes, and I think what you said is very insightful because I've seen this, companies also go to this sunk cost mentality mindset. I've seen this with many large companies whereby they spend a year trying to recruit a senior leader, CEO, CFO, and so on. But the candidate is not the right candidate, but because they're so fatigued from the process that they feel if they let this person go, even if they're not the best person, they're never going to find someone else and they don't want to go through this process again. Do you see some of that happening? Absolutely. It gets back to, here's someone I know. They might not be a 10, they might be an eight, but I know them. And if I have to go back into the job pool, I'm right back into the unknown. And, and I, I think that, uh, you know, leaders are pretty insecure about whether or not they can find the right person and they often settle. I just, uh, I, I think the number one mistake in all staffing, recruiting, hiring, maybe the number one mistake in all human resource issues is people hire too quickly and they fire too slowly. Yes. Switching gears a little bit, I want to come back to the second point you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is a, a good point because of the way you expressed it. The ability to hire is a specialized skill. And it's really taught because it's assumed that as you become more and more senior in an organization, you should first be able to understand what the organization needs. And two, you should have the ability to assess whether a candidate is a good fit for the company. But in very few major organizations, do I see them actively asking themselves, who's the best at interviewing and who should do this interview? Often, it's the most senior person that has the final say, even if they have not skilled at doing it. Do you see that in your work? I do. And I think the, the root of that uh, issue, and this is particularly, I've, I've been a CEO for quite a while. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine years ago, 
and he was asking my advice. He was COO of a Fortune 50 company, and he'd been asked to become CEO of a little bit smaller company, but still a significant company. And I said, well, why would you, why would you hesitate becoming CEO? And he said, William, have you never heard the phrase, the first day you're the CEO is the last day you hear the truth? I like that. Because everyone around you tells you whatever they need to tell you for you to be happy. And, and I think, how does this relate to hiring? I think what happens is um, you, you as a senior leader, it, maybe it's not CEO, maybe it's team leader or EVP or SVP or, or what have you, but you might not know the reality of what's really going on in the company and what it's really like to work there. So you might not have people telling you the truth about who fits and who doesn't. And, and then you base your sense of whether someone's right or not on your sense of the company. And I know I've made this mistake a ton of times. I don't know if you have Michael, but I, and you know what? I, I don't like to admit this, but I really like me. So when I meet people that remind me of me, I think, well, they'd be a great fit here. I think <laughs> it's human not, nature. What's not to like? But the, but the reality is, if I had staffed our senior team with people like me, we would have no money in the bank. <laughs> yes. would, details would drop. Execution of projects wouldn't happen. And it took me a long time before I started our company to realize I need to staff people that complement me, not replicate me. And so I, I, you know, you bring up such a good point. I think really great organizations ask the question, who should be doing the hiring? And I, I, the clients we see that are best at it, it's not, I'm going to make some people mad now. It's not the HR person. Yes. I mean, that's fine, it, but that's not, that's not what they're trained to do. What I see the smartest companies doing is saying, who are our A, top producers and B, top contributors to our company culture? Those two together, not just one or the other, is you can have a brilliant jerk that makes their numbers and you can have somebody who helps culture but doesn't get anything done. But can you identify in your organization people who are getting the job done at an amazing rate and add to the company culture? That's the person you want doing the interview. I remember many years ago, I used to work at some of the large elite consulting firms. There was a lady that was coming in as a senior partner. And she had been through many of the interviews. She was a close personal friend of the managing partner for the region. And it was a final interview. And for some reason, the people I'm meant to interview were not in the office. So she's coming at the managing director level, senior partner level. And I was the only person in the office and I was an associate at that time. So they asked me, Michael, would you do the interview? Because the people I'm meant to do it are not going to be out. It's you know a formality and so on. We want your opinion on her. But Really, there's nobody here, so will you do it? I did the interview, and I didn't feel she'd be a good fit for the firm, so I declined her. And I remember that because when the managing director of the office came in to want to know how the interview went, I explained to him, I spoke to the lady, I don't think she'll be a good fit. She doesn't fit the values of the firm and so on. It was a five-minute conversation, and he said, okay, I agree with you, and that was the end of that interview. And I was thinking to myself, that's a very good example whereby a firm needs to be open to hearing new information about an interview process, irrespective of where they are in the process. Because most companies would have said, well, she's been through four or five interviews. Everyone else said, yes. So we're going to go with their views over your own. And there's an example of leadership being open to hearing things that make them uncomfortable. 
I think the point here I'm trying to make is that part of hiring good people is being open to hearing uncomfortable feedback. Yes, yes. And I, I think a good leader, I've just learned this the hard way, you have to hire people who are for you and for the company and willing to tell you the truth. Yes. I think there's some people who are so dialed in on telling the truth that they'll say things that are not helpful. You know, my dad said, uh, he's an attorney in a small town and he, there's yeah. this one, one star witness for all the traffic accidents at the one stoplight in town. Right. Yeah. And he was trying to train this gentleman how to, how to best testify. And he gave him this long convoluted, you know, law school explanation of things. And finally the gentleman who works at the gas station said, I think I see what you're saying. I think what you're saying is always tell the truth. Just don't always be a telling it. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's what the CEO needs. I, I look at my COO all the time. I say, William, I hate to tell you this, but I think that as a Jen, I pay you to tell me the truth. But yes. she's for me and for the company and then will tell the truth when needed. Not just truth teller that is just trying to say something irritating. I think some people really are wired that way. So no, it's I a absolutely agree. It's about telling the truth that helps the company grow in the way the company should and needs to grow. Yes. My, my CFO said to me many times, I love to be a CFO that says yes. Because, you know, a lot of CFOs, like, they're just wired to say no. You yes. can say, is the sun out today? No. You know, but uh, <laughs> what she'll tell me is, she says, William, the answer is yes. But let me tell you what yes is going to have to look like. Oh, I like In that. other words, if, you, if you're going to spend the money, fine. But that means I'm going to have to cut X, Y, and Z. So I, I think it's that kind of truth telling that, uh, that, that really is winsome in the team. And in turbulent times like this, if leaders can identify the right talent and put them in the right job on the team, I think they're going to be fine through whatever storms may come in the next six, 10 months. Yes. So one of the phrases I use is if someone brings up something, I would say, they would always ask me, is this a good idea? And I would say, well, for this to be a good idea, the following would need to happen. So let's think mm. about the probability of the following happening and then make a decision. Wow, that's really be good. Because I find that if I just say no, I'm not the owner of the idea. I may not know everything that exists here. But also, mm -hmm. if I do it this way, I'm teaching my team to make decisions for themselves. So they can run through this process before they come to me, and they come to me with what they think is going to work. Yes. And that's a much better way of managing it. I think that's right. I think that's right. When someone comes to a team leader with an idea, they probably put some time into it. And what you just did is so genius. It doesn't, you know torpedo the idea and by that same token torpedo all the time and energy this person's put into the idea rather just ask questions about okay well if we go with that what else would happen what what other dominoes would fall yes the other technique i've used which has worked well when i give negative feedback is i never tell someone that there i think the idea is bad i would say that there is a theory in economics which says that if you do the following, the following will happen. So I'm not saying this, but the theory says this. I find that works very well in diffusing negativity because it's not my personal view. It's what we know in the body of knowledge of business, what has happened in the past and what's likely to happen. 
So let's think about why what we're planning to do would be different from what the theory says would likely happen. That's really good. I'm writing that down to remember it. Oh, I like that. Yes, you can use that. So let's switch gears because I want to focus on something quite important. You've said it many times, but I want to go in that direction, right? You spoke about the primary goal of leadership is about finding the right people and putting them in the roles and supporting them, which is a manner of speaking, the end game here is succession planning. But let's take someone like Rob Iger at Disney. I mean, the guy has been through so many succession planning exercises and he's still remaining there. Such that I'm sure the next season of succession from HBO may be a documentary about Robert Iger. But let's talk <laughs> about succession planning, right? Yes. I've seen so many CEOs bring in incredibly talented people, but they fail to realize that if you bring in the best people and they do well, they will want to grow in your company. It's very hard to keep them below you forever. Mm. How have you seen CEOs manage this? Because we talk about bringing in the best, giving them great opportunities, but what happens when those people rise to the occasion and they actually do what they're meant to do? Well, I think the, the, the really smart leaders have a roadmap for uh, how, how many of each type of leader do I need for our organization to scale and grow? I'll give you an example. When I was a younger leader, I went out, I had to hire four sort of senior vice presidents, for lack of a better way of saying yes. it, at the same time. We, we cleared house, started with the staff. I went and found four of the most talented young men I'd ever met. They were wonderful. And I hired based on talent. And then I learned why nobody wants to coach the U.S. men's Olympic basketball team, because it's... <laughs> It's all talent, and everybody says, "Give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball." There's yes. no chemistry, right? Yes. So, so I think uh, when I was a younger CEO, I hired purely based on talent and capacity, and I didn't think about the whole team. Yeah. Now, a smarter leader, that's a good friend of mine, uh, who runs uh, a very, very large company that's uh, kind of a franchise model, if you will. Um, he figured out pretty quickly. I need about. I need a central staff that's not in any one franchise and probably a team of about five of us that are leaders of that, each with different roles and different giftings. And then after that, for the franchise locations, I need outstanding general managers and I need them to feel a sense of ownership. So, you know, no offense to the, the operators of the franchise, but they are not world beater, you know, 11 on a scale of 1 to 10 leaders, they're fantastic, set, steady, solid plotters that are going to get things done. But when they rise to the occasion, the ceiling of them rising to the occasion is running their one franchise. And this friend of mine who's CEO and, and very, very smart has not had the issue of everybody wants to climb the ladder and get my job. Yes. So he, he has realized like there are a few that need to be in the middle that are growing and growing into regional leadership and national leadership and global leadership. And then there are four or five in the front office and he takes very good care of those people. They all have very different jobs and uh, it's worked really well. Now, what he does when he steps down in the next 10, 12 years, that, that's going to be really interesting to see. I, I, I'm sure he'll handle it better than I would have. But uh, I think the key is understanding that you need to hire four the team as it is now and the team as it grows and scales 
and not just hire the most talented person you could find. That's not always the right answer. Yes, I like that. Because what you're saying is that it's not that that franchise manager cannot grow and take on more responsibility, but for the role he has, this is as good as he can be, and it works for him. But if he wanted more responsibility, he wanted to do more things, he could grow into those roles. But what happens when, let's look at the executive suite, right? You've got the CEO, you've got the usual executive officers, let's say chief design officer, CFO, chief strategy officer, chief operating officer, and so on. Maybe you have divisional leaders as well. What have you seen as best practices for that level whereby someone in the executive office is a star? The natural step for them is to be CEO. How do you manage that tension whereby the CEO may not be ready to resign, but someone in an executive suite may be ready for something bigger? What's the best practices for managing that? Well, there there are a lot of different ideas. Let me tell you my hope for our work, um, because we do have a a lead team of of six people, and then we have a great team past that. So what happens when the, the lead team outgrows the current job and I'm not ready to step down. Here's what I'm going to define as success. When I retire and my wife or whoever throws a retirement dinner for me, I want to see 50 CEOs that used to sit on my lead team come back for that dinner. And I want to say, I remember them when they were on the very first rung of the ladder when yes. they worked all the way up. And then I launched them into their role as CEO. And that's not that. that that might sound like William, you're trying to be noble. It's actually on I think everybody is on the one hand noble, on the other hand, self-serving in most everything yes. they do. The the noble part of me to say, yes, what a great thing that I've filled other companies with great leaders. The selfish part of me though is I've seen this happen. When smart leaders grow and release a team member to a higher job at another place, you know what that makes them? A great place to go work. Yes. Oh, Kinds of people will line up out the door to say, I want to work for you because when I get to where I'm ready to be CEO, you're going to help me get there. And and if you help, if you spend your time helping your people get to their best destination, you'll never have to worry about the pipeline to refill those positions. That's a very good way of thinking about it. It's a very mature and strategic, and as you say, a little bit self-serving, but it's a win-win situation. That's when right. I was a consulting partner, we had there's a concept that developed called an export strategy, whereby we would develop people in our office with the explicit goal of sending them to work in another office. And people thought that was not a very smart idea. But I said that, look, if I train someone who knows me and I send him to work in the Dubai office, for example, when the Dubai office needs help, they're going to come to my team first. And we're going to get exposure to work in Dubai. We're going to build relationships. We're going to get fees and so on. And it tended to be a very successful model because it's exactly what you said. We became a training ground for people in the firm. Financially, it was beneficial to us. From a network perspective, it was definitely beneficial for us. From a client portfolio perspective, we got introduced to clients we'd never have met if we kept all of the best people in one region. It's very similar to what you're saying. There's benefit in releasing your best people so they don't stagnate and end up resenting you and living on bad terms. Well, particularly in the management consulting world, I mean, I've seen, I have a sister-in-law who's a partner at Bain and uh, a son who was with Deloitte for quite a while. And I've seen a lot of people get off the consultant 
uh, roller coaster and take a job at a client. And you think, well, that's terrible. I just lost one of my best people to a client. But guess what? Now you have the best relationship you've ever had with that client. And the work and the after work is going to be better than ever. It's, a, it's like you say, it's a win-win. Yes. I remember once when I was uh, talking to a client, they told me, look, we know one of the concerns is that we may poach some of your people. But in my view, I never understood the concept of poaching. If someone wants to leave my team to go to a better job, I would want to keep good relationships with them. As long as everything is done above the board, you tell me you want to hire one of my people, you do it in a timeline that's suitable for me, I can't see anything negative coming out of this because now I have one of the people that knows me, knows the way I think, knows my values on the client side to advocate for me. What could be better than that? That's right. That's right. And, and we have a similar situation. Our consultants go and do great work in a search. And many, many times the client will say, you know, I think we found our person and it's your employee. Yeah. <laughs> so it's flattering. Now, we've said that's fine. Um, there's a mechanism in your contract to do that. It's really expensive. So you need to make sure this is what you want to do. Yes. But if that's what you want, then that's fine. But I think what you did is very smart. You have a mechanism in your contract. You know it's going to happen. You know it could be part of your business more. And I think where the anxiety happens with companies is they assume it's never going to happen. It always surprises me when companies say we hire the best people, but we think they're never going to be poached. But if you hire the best people, they're always going to be attractive to someone else. So you need to have a mechanism in your contract to make sure it's a fair exchange for you. And I think that's Every, a good thing you've done. Well, I, I, you know what I've learned the hard way because... As we've all and, done the hard way, yes. That's right. I have a philosophy and religion degree. And that's not really, you know, most people that have a philosophy degree spend their career saying, would you like fries with that? You know, so I, I had to learn on the learn on the job. And every clause in our contracts, I can tell you a story about why that clause got there. So when, when you get bitten, just use it as an opportunity to put something in the contract and predict it happening again. And uh and and then you can sleep a little better. Yes. I think that's a good way of thinking about it. It's a mature way of thinking about it because it is going to happen. Switching gears again, William. We have listeners all over the world, very senior levels, management consulting, and so on. If they wanted to do one thing to be a better leader on Monday morning, 8 a.m., when they come in after listening to this wonderful podcast, what do you recommend they do and spend time becoming really good at as leaders? Sure. Uh, my current, you know, this is, uh, I'll probably have a different answer in a year or two. Hopefully I'll grow and evolve yes. and, and know more. But I think the the, you know, when we did this study for the book that we wrote on what the very best of the best, what habits do they yes. exemplify? One of them was self-awareness. And, and, when we went through the 30,000 best candidates we had and said, how do people rate on self-awareness? Um, most people think they have it, but they don't. So if there were one practice, I would say a leader could do right now to come into the office better on Monday morning is get to know yourself. If you really get to know the good, the bad, and the ugly, where are you best? Where are you not? That will give you a clear roadmap for who to hire, how to hire what to let people know they're getting into if they come work for you. I mean, if you're a really high powered leader, you're probably, you probably got some prickly parts of you. I know I do. Yes. But I would say develop self-awareness. You know, it's funny in the, after we studied these 30,000, we went ahead and 
we identified these 12 habits that the very best of the best all exemplify in some measure or another. The cool thing is anyone can learn the 12 habits. So it's, it's really, really interesting. But once we had those 12, we survey and we surveyed a quarter million people and uh, asked them uh, how they would grade themselves on each of these 12 uh, qualities. 86% of everyone said they were above average in self-awareness. Okay, well, <laughs> Michael, you've probably had done enough math courses in your life. Yes. 86% of people are not above average. <laughs> That's that a lot. That is why it's called the average. <laughs> That's right. So I think we fool ourselves, and we think we know ourselves. I know the parts about me that I really like. I don't know the parts about me that I really don't like. I, you know, Socrates, what's we have from him right before he died was, yes. know yourself. It's something that you have to practice with purpose. And what I found works for me, and it's not something that I just figured out because I read it, is I always ask myself why I'm doing this, why I'm in this meeting, why am I doing this? Because I remember when I was up to become director, the way my firm worked is we do reviews for directors and director nominates, as we call them, roughly every two years. And I was talking to this client about doing a fairly complex corporate finance study for them. And I got up one morning and I told myself, why is this so important to me? It's so important to me because I know that if the client agrees to this, it's almost certain I'll become a director. But then I thought to myself, I don't think this is best for the client. And I went and I spoke to the client and said, I think we should not do this study because I don't think it's good for you. And it's not what your firm needs. Now, I'd like to say the client agreed with me. They disagreed with me. They brought in a rival firm. But Eight months later, they hired me again to undo the work because they eventually agreed with me. So mm. knowing yourself is not always positive. There are sometimes negative consequences, but it's about accepting why you are doing things and understanding the consequences of your choices. Totally agree. Totally agree. And I just, I, I know there's so much more I need to learn about me. And, and it really, it makes conversation so much easier if instead of, you know, as, as management consultants, we're asked to give our opinion about things, you know, the, the greatest experts in the world are the 25-year-old management consultants. See, I knew everything when I was that age, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think the more I learned my own uh, strengths and weaknesses, the more disarming my advice can be when it's advice people don't want to hear. Because I can say, you know, yes. boy, I remember... One of the biggest screw ups I ever had was when I hired for talent and not for culture. And, you know, it led me, it was so hard to undo that. I had to go fire people. It's just because I know me, I want to recruit the best talent. I see that in you. And I don't know if you share the same weakness I do, but golly, if you do, let me save you some stupid tax because I've already paid <laughs> it for you. Tax. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I I, see, that's so much more disarming than saying, you need to do this because yes. I know so. Yes, absolutely. You know, one of the things I've noticed when I speak to people, it's very easy to see who's a self-aware leader and who's a young leader. Younger yes. leaders speak in certainty. They've done the analysis. They know what works. They have conviction. Well, leaders who are willing to bear the pain for their choices who understand that things go wrong, who know it's not about the best answer, who know that they could have done everything right and the competitor could still beat them. They speak with a mature uncertainty. 
They don't tell you they know for a fact. They don't tell you they've run all the analysis because they know it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Things go wrong. When I'm talking to people, I always look for who has absolute certainty. And is that certainty based on experience or is it because they are so focused on the numbers and the analysis? And I mm -hmm. find that most times that works for me fairly well to distinguish between different types of leaders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's very good. That's very good. Yes, because I've noticed that the most brilliant leaders I've ever met will tell me things like, Michael, I'm not actually qualified to speak on this subject, even though I run a company operating this field. So why don't you tell me what you have seen works? And they'll be sitting there and taking lots and lots of notes versus trying to convince me they know everything about what is happening. And when people are like that, when they ask these probing questions, then I know that this is someone who's going to make a thoughtful decision, at least has the highest probability of making a thoughtful decision. And I think that That's it's something we can always learn from those people. I remember once I was uh, doing a study for my firm and we invited a Nobel Prize winner in economics to serve as our advisor. And I remember this guy telling me, Michael, even though I won the Nobel Prize, I don't think I'm qualified to advise you on this. <laughs> There's probably nobody better in the field. And then he explained to me why he doesn't think he's qualified. And he was actually right. There was someone better that he recommended for us. But I'm thinking to myself, this is someone who makes good decisions because they think about what is best for other people. Mm -hmm. That's because really good advice. You would have been paid a lot of money. You would have been given a credit to say he worked with us, which obviously would have helped his career in the commercial field. I'm sure he doesn't have a shortage of opinions and opportunities, but that's a kind of maturity that's very hard to find. And I think you know everything you said is wonderfully said, but must always come back to the point you raised at the end, which is about self-awareness is a skill that takes time to learn because as we age, we change and we need to become self-aware all over again about different things. Completely agree. The, you know, uh, we do evolve and change. What's the old line? Uh, you know, when the couple was celebrating their 40th anniversary and the wife was asked, how have you, you know, stayed married to this man? you know, for as long as you have. She said, oh, I've been married 40 years, but I've been married to eight different men. It's just <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I like that. That's actually true about life. If you go in with a lot of expectations and you get disappointed every time your expectations are not met, then you need to understand that it's not life's role to meet your expectations. Totally agree. Totally agree. So every time I, I feel unhappy about something, I think, why am I unhappy? Because this person didn't do what I want, but why should they do what I want? It's perfectly normal they would want to pursue their own interests. So I'm disappointed because I had a misunderstanding about what to expect out of this relationship, but the other party hasn't done anything except what they told me they will do. So maybe I need to change the way I approach things. And that's, again, being self-aware. So there's many different elements to the self-aware angle. You can unpack it for years and you'd still find things new about it. Completely agree with you. And uh, one day I'll figure myself out. <laughs> I like that. That could be the name of your new book. One day I'll figure myself out. <laughs> William, an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed that. That was one of the best discussions I've had on leadership in a long time. So I want to thank you for that opportunity. Well, I, I took a bunch of notes. You've helped me a lot, and I really appreciate the chance to be with you today. And hopefully in a few months or a year, we'll have you back on the show if you're willing to be back here. Love that. That'd be great. Thanks so much, and have a great day. Take care. Ciao.
And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.